Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day, on a special occasion in the life of our church, God's preservation of His truth, Reformation Day. Today reminds us that God is faithful. God is faithful to preserve His truth throughout the ages and to preserve His church through that same truth, the truth of the gospel. Maybe you're new to our church or you've not visited here before, or maybe you've been here for a long time and never looked at our back wall. But if you turn and look, you'll see five statements uh, that were popular within the Reformation to talk about and summarize key aspects of the gospel that had been lost and now recovered. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus, in Christ or by Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. These summary statements are important to us as a church. Uh, they, we've placed them there to remind us of these core aspects of the gospel. Today uh, marks nearly 495 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door at the Wittenberg Chapel to begin a debate about the nature of some of the practices of the church, church practices that were abusive and, and perverting the gospel, and ultimately would lead to a revolution within the thinking in the hearts of those during that time. Now today's not going to be a historical lecture. Some of you who maybe uh, were in Sunday school a few years ago with me may be breathing a sigh of relief now. Um, thankfully, it is not that. Now we will be looking today at God's Word. And we will be looking in particular at sola fide. Justification is by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone apart from works. And this justification leads to living that manifests Christ in the world. Today my hope is that God, by the work of His Holy Spirit, will nail this core thesis of the Gospel to our hearts and that we will see and savor Him more clearly as a result. If you will, if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, this should be page 973. Now our focal verses today will be 15 through 21, but we're going to pick up reading in verse 11. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth 
and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law will no one be justified. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, even as we read these words this morning, we're reminded that your word is truth and life. We're thankful for it. But Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and respond to your word. Lord, that you would build us up, form us into Christ. Lord, if there are those here who do not know this great truth that we're going to talk about today, I pray that they would be open and receptive to it, Lord, that you would bring life where there was death. We pray all these things for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this text that we've just read was chosen from a book that is very central to the Reformers, very near and dear to their hearts, a truth that they proclaimed, sola fide, but there are some reasons why the Reformers found very close similarity uh, with and, and affection for this particular book of the Bible, Galatians. They saw within the situation Paul describes here, a situation looked very much like their own. Just as Paul had observed in Antioch a, a situation in which Peter was acting hypocritically and perverting the gospel... So they too were, like Paul, observing in Rome a pope sitting in Peter's seat, perverting the gospel. And initially, they sought to rebuke and bring back and restore purity to God's church. Ultimately, uh, a separation had to occur. But they saw a similar situation and a similar purpose to their own efforts of reform. Galatians was also central to Luther and his evangelical breakthrough. As you may be aware, Luther became a monk through some interesting circumstances. And he, while he was in the monastery, began studying and eventually became a lecturer in the scriptures. His lectures in the book of Romans and from the book of Galatians were seemingly instrumental in his coming to a new understanding of what it meant to be justified and how one came to that new state. Luther had a great love for Galatians. In fact, he called it my Katie. Katie, well, that refers to his wife, Catherine von Bora. He compares his love of Galatians to his love for his wife, 
Um, Luther was given to very eccentric statements, and so you'll actually get a flavor for that today. Luther's, probably his most influential commentary was his commentary on Galatians. It's widely published and read both on the continent of Europe and in the British Isles. And for that reason, um, Galatians commended itself to us today. But in that commentary, we find that justification by faith is central to the heart of Luther's own theology and program of reform. For there we find, if, if it's not the central theme, it's right there with, within a small cluster of themes, maybe Christian freedom. But justification by faith alone could rightly be said to be the theme of Galatians. And for Luther, justification rests at the heart of Christian theology. He once wrote, If, doctrine, if the doctrine of justification is lost... The whole of Christian doctrine is lost. In fact, he had so much confidence in the right preaching of God's word on this matter that he felt that had the the popes and and bishops and others just conceded him this one point and preached it along with him, he wrote, The entire papacy, with all its brotherhoods, indulgences, orders, relics, forms of worship, invocation of saints, purgatory, masses, vigils, Vows and the endless other abominations of that sort would have been overthrown. So it's not too much to say that sola fide, that justification is by faith alone, lies at the center of the heart of the Reformation. And rightly so, for as we'll see today in our text, justification by faith lies at the heart of the gospel. And we're jumping right into the middle of a book, so I need to make a couple of comments to help give us some context for what we're reading. Paul's written his letter to the Galatians on the word that they've received or turned from the gospel. For that reason, he takes a very severe ter- uh, tone with them. Other letters, you maybe can replay different readings that you've had in the scriptures. You know, Paul generally gets into a, starts out with kind of a nice greeting, and then thanks the Lord for them, gives them an encouragement, and then maybe gets around to uh, addressing some matters. In Galatians, he kind of skips the pleasantries. Paul introduces himself and then launches off into a very sharp rebuke. And in that rebuke, we see what was at stake. If you look in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul's taking a very sharp tone Uh, from the very beginning of his letter. And he's addressing the true nature of the gospel. If we were to outline the book uh, in whole, we'd see that uh, Paul's six chapters can be be broken into two chapter pairs. Uh, The first two chapters address his history. The second two, theology. And the last two, practice. In the very first two chapters, Paul's apostolic ministry and message are defended. And that's where we find our particular passage today. It introduces then a second section of theology. Justification is by faith alone. And Paul works out the theology that we'll be 
looking at today in our text um, throughout that section, and then the implications for living in Christian freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit in chapters 5 and 6. Immediately preceding these verses, verses 11 through 14, Paul conflicts with Peter regarding hypocritical behavior. When his Jewish friends aren't around, Paul eats with the Gentiles in freedom. He ignores the dietary constraints. But when his Jewish friends come around, he begins putting those constraints back on the Gentiles or the non-Jews. Paul says that this activity was not in step with the gospel. And then he says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This same question carries over into our passage. And our text today serves as a theological linchpin or a summary statement for the entire book. Justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, and it results in living that incarnates or manifests Christ to the world. Well, now turning to our, our verses, uh, beginning there in verse 15 of chapter 2, we see Paul's thesis. Justification is by faith alone in Jesus. We ourselves are Jews by birth, he says, and not Gentile sinners. Paul begins by noting a common heritage that he and Peter and other Jewish Christians share. They have a privileged status in that they are God's chosen people. They were given the law of Moses. They were given the sign of circumcision. So he says, they are not like the Gentile sinners. Well, what does he mean by sinners? He's saying that Jews are by nature morally superior, better off, maybe less susceptible to sin. No. He's saying that by birth and by nurture, by habit and practice... They have the law of God and a knowledge of it to some extent so that they might try to follow it and keep it. The Gentiles, unlike them, don't have God's law and don't try to keep it. And so he says they are sinners. He's going to use this language as he progresses on. So I want us to keep a hold of it. So they have this common heritage. They also have a common theology. And he starts verse 16. Yet... We know, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. See, he appeals to Peter and these other Jewish Christians and those in the church of Galatia to say, look, we know that, that, that salvation and justification has not come through the law that we were given. We already agreed on that, right? What is justification? You've probably heard this term over and over again this morning, both in our singing and now in in this time of, of examination of the Scriptures. What is justification? Well, to be justified is to be pronounced righteous or declared righteous, to render someone just or innocent. The term has a legal connotation to it. One who's justified has gone from guilty to innocent in God's court. And here in our text, the verb justified has a couple of aspects I want us to note. First, it's stative. It's a fancy word for saying it announces a state of being or an ongoing state of affairs. So to be justified is to be right before God, to have the status of righteousness before God. 
And it's also important for us to note this is passive, not active. To be justified is something that is done to us or for us. It reminds us that the righteous standing we have doesn't come from inside of us. It's given to us from outside of us. So where, what is that source or by what means is one justified? Well, for greater clarity, Paul makes his point negatively and then positively. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. When he says not justified by works of the law, when we attach justification to works of the law, justification becomes emphatically negated. He says we are in no way justified by works of the law. What are these works of the law? Well, earlier in in verses 11 through 14, we saw some of those, some of these ceremonial aspects of the law. We see uh, a certain kind of diet, maybe feast days or Sabbaths, possibly the sign of circumcision, as it was noted, the circumcision party. So we see these aspects. Some have tried to separate those from the moral aspects of the law. To say the Ten Commandments or the greatest commandments. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors ourselves. That those commandments weren't really in view for what Paul is talking about here. Over in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul notes that those that receive circumcision in hopes of justification... I'm summarizing here. Those that receive this sign are obligating themselves to keep the entire law to accomplish justification. And we know that is not possible. James says if you've broken one part of the law, James chapter 2, verse 10, he says if you've broken any one of these commandments, you're guilty of the whole law. So we have this need for a Savior other than the law. So as we think about what does Paul mean by works of the law here, we should see that all of it, all of it without distinction, the entirety of it, for justification to be right before God, we must keep God's every commandment perfectly. And there's only been one who's ever done that, our Lord Jesus Christ. So having noted a common theology, Paul then turns to talk about a common experience. He says, In addition to what we know, he says in verse 16, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Paul builds his argument to say, it's not just that we know that. You've believed this too. We've talked about it. We've together believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. So why are you turning back? This justifying faith is not just a faith in a doctrine. It's not just faith in a statement on a wall. It's a a faith in a person, a trust in a personal Savior. The the phrase in Christ appears for us three times in in verse 16. Christ is the object of our faith. B.B. Warfield, not not a Protestant reformer, but of the tradition... B.B. Warfield summarizes well this concept that faith is in Christ. Listen. It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, 
but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or in the attitude of faith or even in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. Faith's power does not reside in itself, but in its object. And in this case, Paul reminds them that we have believed in Christ. He is the one that brings salvation. Well, who is this Jesus in whom we believe? In John 3.16, a verse familiar to us all, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The early church summarized this truth of who Jesus was by an acronym, the Greek word fish, ichthus. The ichthus gospel is that Jesus Christ is God's Son, our Savior. This is the one in whom we have believed. And just as a point of application, as we move through this text, I want us to think about and consider within our own context here, where we've elevated so many of God's works in history to... um, preserve His truth, and we, we rightly um, celebrate sound doctrine. The question is, have we placed our faith in our doctrinal formulation instead of Christ? Is our, is, are these doctrinal formulations something we wear on our sleeve uh, to be shown and known around the world? Is it, is it a trophy to be put on our shelf uh, to showcase to the, all those who might see it? a source of pride and possibly even idolatry? Have we divorced our pursuit of Christ from a pursuit of doctrine? And that's not to say that the two are opposed. Biblical doctrine should lead us to Christ, to see Him more clearly, to love Him more dearly. Let us turn our faith to Christ if it has been moved. Finally, in verse 16, Paul summarizes, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Think about that. Enter not. He's pleading. Do not enter into judgment with me. Because if you do, I'm only going to be found guilty and and inept to meeting your righteous standard. One must fear coming under the judgment of an all-holy, all-righteous God. The Scriptures tell us that our righteousness is like a polluted garment, or as the King James Version puts it, like filthy rags. And lest we think we're somehow outside of this judgment, Romans chapter 3, verses 22 And following says, For there is no distinction, that is, between Jew or non-Jew. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he gives us a good word. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a big word meaning a wrath-absorbing substitute, by His blood To be received by faith. So Paul has 
emphatically and clearly laid out the summary of his teaching for us in verses 15 and 16. And now, in verses 17 through 21, he moves to offering a preliminary defense that he's going to continue in chapters 3 and 4 as he he unfolds for us all that justification by faith is. And then in chapters 5 and 6, what it means, its implications for our everyday living. So verses 17 through 19, uh, Paul Paul raises an objection and offers some explanation. Verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Here Paul poses a a possibility, an untrue possibility, but a possibility nonetheless for the sake of an argument. He returns again to the sinner's language that he picked up or deployed in verse 15. If the gospel of freedom that Paul is preaching leads people to neglect the ceremonial, the moral, or any other kind of law, is he not making them sinners? In saying that they're not justified by keeping that, isn't he making them a sinner by preaching this message? We might think about it differently. As one commentator notes, Paul's response here in verse 17 helps us understand maybe some of the arguments that Peter's Jewish friends were making to him when they came to Antioch. Peter, don't you realize that your open table fellowship with the Gentiles is a repudiation of the law of God? You're actually engaging in sin, brother. And furthermore, when you try to justify this kind of behavior by appealing to our common faith in Christ, you're really making him an agent of sin. Paul takes that argument and lays it out and says, no, certainly not, absolutely not. And then he gives us some explanation. Verse 18, we read, For through the law, I'm sorry, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is it that Paul tore down? The law is what Paul tore down. The law is a test of fellowship among believers as a a means to getting in good or being accepted before God is really a reversal of the gospel. If I rebuild what I tore down, the law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, then in verse 19, Paul goes on to talk about, well, why is that the case? What what is the law's purpose? He says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What is the law's purpose? Well, I can speak from personal experience when I tell you, A mirror can't fix ugly. (laughs) No, when I look in that mirror, it tells me exactly what is looking into it. It shows me what it sees. The law of God is just like this. It doesn't fix ugly. It shows it for what it is. It shows us the ugliness of our sin in the light of God's righteous standard. Now, I hope you'll remember that the next time you look into a mirror. Um, Don't blame the mirror. 
No, the scriptures teach us that the, that the law gives us a knowledge that we would not otherwise have. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Sounds familiar? Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law is called our guardian. Some translations have that as schoolmaster, instructor, or teacher. Our guardian until Christ comes. Our schoolmaster unto Christ. The law shows us our sin and consequently our need for a Savior. Incidentally, this is an apt description and metaphor for us as parents and what we are trying to do with our children and raising them in the ways of the Lord. We're not trying to make them right. We're trying to help them see their need for a Savior. The law only has the power to condemn us, not to justify us. The law only has the power to reveal sin, not deal with it. It only has the power to reveal our impurity, not cleanse us from it. And specifically here, Paul tells us that the law's purpose was that of an instrument of death. It killed him. It led him to the end of himself by showing him the sentence of death that hung over his head. This is all kind of grim until Paul helps us understand the hope. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. This verb is in the perfect tense. It means something that happened long ago has effects that are carrying on into the present time. It refers, as one commentator put it, to something that took place and has not lost its power since. We've been crucified with Christ. With Christ, we've been united with Him in His death. So we've died. And we've been raised again that He might live through us in the world. Baptism is a sign of this union with Christ. It pictures for us our dying with Christ and our being raised again. And this resurrection we've been hearing about weekly now for the last month or so, This resurrection hope is in the present tense. We have newness of life now. It changes the way we live. We live as Christ, as Paul puts it here. But it also has a future hope for us. We know that we will, unless He returns, we will die. And our bodies will be put in the ground. So ultimately our hope is there in His return. And in that resurrection that He will bring. And we have confidence that we will be raised because we have been crucified with Christ. Union with Christ means His death is our death. His life is our life. His righteousness is our righteousness. His incorruptibility is our incorruptibility. We will be like Him for we will see Him as He is. What or who is it that defines you? Who defines us? 
Is your identity wrapped up in your job, your family, your recreations, your friends? Or is your identity conjoined? Is it connected? Is it wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? If you have identified yourself with Christ at some point in the past, is this identification carrying forward and shaping your everyday living now? Perhaps you've never publicly identified with Christ through baptism. I encourage you to obey Christ's command to repent and believe and be baptized. He continues, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is the nature of this union? What we don't mean by this is that it's perfectionism. Being united with Christ doesn't mean you're all of a sudden magically made perfect from that day uh, forward. It means that you are now viewed through Christ. God sees Him when He sees you. It also doesn't mean a mystical confusion. Somehow our personality is erased away and now Christ lives and we have no consciousness of it. No, Christian faith is for an eternal personal existence of worship and fellowship with God and His church. So what is this? How are we united with Christ? Well, the Scriptures tell us that we, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that we're united to Christ by His Spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Christ fills us and leads us by His Spirit so that our lives are lived as Christ in the world. And that is a theme that Paul will, will look at in great detail in chapter 5 of Galatians. He continues, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Here Paul points to the means of our new living. We begin and continue the Christian life by faith. Said differently, the means of entrance into Christ are the same means by which we live in Christ, by faith. And who is this Son of God? Well, Paul, Paul gives us a very succinct summary. He says, He's the one, the Son of God is the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. Here again we have that ichthus gospel expressed succinctly. Jesus is God's Son. The One who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is, our Savior. Luther, in his typically colorful fashion, challenges us here. Did the law ever love me? Did the law ever sacrifice itself for me? Did the law ever die for me? On the contrary, it accuses me. It frightens me. It drives me crazy. Somebody else saved me from the law, from sin and death, unto eternal life. That somebody is the Son of God, to whom be praise and glory forever. The words for me here as Brett's sermon on the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us. It's not enough to assent to the facts of Christ's birth, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, ascension, and return. The demons believe these things. We must believe the good news. 
As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And Luther's comments on verse 20 in our passage, he writes, Read the words me and for me with great emphasis. Print this me with capital letters in your heart. And do not ever doubt that you belong to the number of those who are meant by this me. Christ did not only love Peter and Paul. Same love he felt for them, he feels for us. If we cannot deny that we are sinners, we cannot deny that Christ died for our sins. A point of application. Where do you find your assurance for salvation today? Is it in the all-sufficiency and strength of your faith? Or is it in the all-sufficiency and strength of Christ's work for you? Remember what Warfield said. It's not the act of faith, the nature of faith, the strength of faith that saves. It's the object of our faith that saves. If you find your faith weak this morning... Maybe you've struggled to to believe that you are saved. Cry out with the with the cry of the boy who's uh, who was mute. Cry out with the cry out with the cry of the, of the father of the boy who was mute. Boy couldn't say anything. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. When verse twenty one, Paul wraps up his his summary statement, with an unthinkable implication. He writes, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. As one translation put it, Christ died needlessly. The unthinkable implication of works righteousness, that is, The unthinkable implication of trying to add our own good deeds on top of what Christ has already done for the purpose of being right before God is that we deny the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The logic here is similar to that of verse 18. We would be reversing the gospel if we permitted this. So this morning, I would call you to respond in a few ways. Do not, first, do not turn to a different gospel. Do not reject the grace of God. Remember that Jesus plus anything equals a false gospel. Jesus plus anything equals a false gospel. And to add anything to His work is to rob Him of the glory and worship that is due only to Him. Calvin helps us here. He says, To to rob Christ of His role as mediator is the same as to obscure the glory of His nativity and make void His cross. In short, those who do so divest and defraud of due praise everything which He did or suffered, since all which He did and suffered goes to show that He is and ought to be deemed the sole mediator. This has implications for our worship. Do we find motivation for our worship and praise on a Sunday morning or throughout our weeks based on who Christ is? Do we reflect upon, do we meditate upon who Christ is and what He's done for us? Do we let it have that effect of worship in our heart? 
Maybe in our approach to doing good deeds. There's this constant temptation, as they talk about in a Christian living class, of turning to false gospels of, of performance. Do we view our good deeds as a means to getting in a little bit better with God or maybe even with our fellow brothers and sisters here at Redeemer? Or do we view our good deeds in light of this reality, this sola fide reality? Justification is by faith alone, apart from works. That means good works have now been freed from from that self-interest of getting in good with God. We now are free to worship God in thanksgiving through our good deeds. We must be on constant guard as we check our motives and the good works that we do. And then finally, perhaps you're here today and you've been following along with us and you hear, hear, hear me saying that Paul is appealing to Peter and fellow Christians based on a common theology or a common experience of believing in Christ. And you say, well, I've never done that. Um, I, I, I didn't really believe that before I walked in here today, although I'm maybe persuaded. Well, your response is, is to simply repent and believe this good news. You cannot work your way into God's goodness, but the good news is that He has provided a way for you. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're interested in knowing more about that, I will be at the, near the front this morning and others around you would certainly be happy to share with you. But you must acknowledge that you are sin, a sinner before God and hopeless of any right standing before Him in and of yourself. And you must believe. You must put your faith on Christ. You must put all the weight of your salvation hopes on Christ and in Him alone. Just like a parachute. If you're in a plane and it's par- plummeting to the earth, it's not simply enough to say, I, I believe that parachute will save me. The only way that your faith will save you is to be united with that parachute and to trust it as you jump out of the plane. And in the same way, it's not enough to sit and join the the demons in recognizing that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You must entrust yourself to Him. You must put all the weight of your salvation hopes on Him. I ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we know we are weak. Even in our faith, we are weak. And we need help in our unbelief. I want to pray for our hearts and our minds that they would receive and respond to your word. Have your way in us. pray this in Jesus' name.